Okay, hello. Uh, welcome to Beastly Theories. I'm your host, Andy McGrath. Uh, today we've got Lyle Blackburn. Uh, Lyle is an author, cryptid researcher from Texas. Uh, he investigates uh, things like uh, beasts in the southern part of the U.S. Uh, he's written The Beast of Boggy Creek, Beyond Boggy Creek and Lizard Man. He's had a, a lifelong fascination with legends and, and sighting reports of unknown creatures. And, and during his research, he's, he's been all over the, these backwards and the swampland areas there in Texas and, and other areas as well. He's a, a frequent uh, guest on Coast to Coast AM. He's appeared on numerous television shows, including Monsters and Mysteries in America, Strange Evidence, Finding Bigfoot. Also featured in the award-winning documentary film Boggy Creek Monster. And he's narrated several other films for small-town monsters productions, including Very Robust. Uh, welcome, Lyle. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. I am very, very glad to have you here. Actually, now I did explain to you before the call started. I do have a cold, so for any listeners out there that can't understand me, there will be subtitles uh, later. Um, like you're a, a highly regarded cryptozoology writer, speaker, field investigator, film narrator, as we just mentioned. Uh, how did it all come about? I'm assuming you just didn't get up one day and say, "Hey, I think I'm going to become a famous." cryptozoology personality because that's where the money is right how did you start on this road right i don't think any of us were uh, <laughs> thinking that right uh yeah no it's just something like a lot of us just as at an early age i was just fascinated by, by reports of you know what i thought of as monsters back then you know i mean i loved horror movies and frankenstein and things like that but when i started reading books about bigfoot the log nest monster the yeti that really caught my imagination and kind of freaked me out because I thought, wow, you know, th there could be something like this out there. And I grew up hunting with my father. He was an avid deer hunter. So I was uh, in the woods a lot and went through small towns and things like that, places where people had seen and reported cryptid activity. So, mm -hmm. you know, that, that kind of stuck in the back of my mind when I was out there. And just ever since then, I've you know, just been a sort of a casual reader of books and, and I watched, you know, whatever documentaries and television shows were available at the time. And uh, I've been a musician and a writer all my life. And at some point uh, I wanted to write a book and I thought, well, what is my favorite subject? And it was uh, the subject of The Legend of Boggy Creek, which was a movie based on sightings of a Bigfoot-like creature in southern Arkansas, close to where I live in Texas. And so I just literally uh, took a break from my band to write that book just because I wanted to. I wanted to know, you know, the whole story behind it. And the book came out. It was a, a good seller. And, you know, I got a great response from it. And things just went from there. So, you know, TV shows that featured that kind of stuff started calling and uh, the ball just kept rolling. So I, I thought, well, this is cool. Maybe I should write some more books. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of legends I'm fascinated in. So it just kind of went from there. How long has it been since that happened? When did the book come out? I know Amazon tells me 2013, but I'm thinking it's earlier than that. Is that right? The Beast of Boggy Creek came out in 2012. And uh -huh. I started the the research part of that around 2009 um so and then up to there prior to that i kind of hooked into some local groups that were uh, looking for bigfoot sasquatch things like that kind of got up to speed on what was going on 
um, as far as modern research, you know, like literally people with boots on on the ground. And I, I got involved in that. So it's been about a decade, uh, uh, give or take, in which I've been literally consumed by this on a daily basis. And you mentioned that you're a musician. Now, I know that obviously when we met in London, I you were playing. So I uh, I came up to see you play. But unfortunately, due to our, our classic uh, London transport, everything was off. So the moment I got there, I had to leave and go home. <laughs> so I missed the whole thing. So you've been a musician for a long time, I take it. How how does that match with your life being a cryptozoologist on the one hand and being active on the scene? And then I'm assuming that you still tour and you still write albums as well. How do you put both those together? Mm, it's kind of difficult. I mean, both of them can be a full-time endeavor. Um, but as somebody who's made a living at, at sort of both of these trades over the years, uh, you know, without the music, I couldn't do this because um, while I, in fact, I'm I'm one of the better sellers on my publisher but there's the market for these kind of books is not you know we're not talking about uh, a huge market so i mean you're to, in order to do this you know you have to have some supplementary income so i've always kept the band going though it's been difficult to go on long tours because i'm constantly uh, booked to speak at events or do book signings so and then to do research, if I'm researching a book, I mean, I may have to go out of state, interview people and just do all the things that goes along with that, as well as just, you know, going in the woods and experiencing things for myself. So it's a it's definitely a juggling match to do it all, but it, it's uh -huh. all enjoyable. So, you know, I just do my best. Well, I think that's for me, it's it's a very similar thing. It has to be about the enjoyment. Now, now that actually brings me on to the, your reputation. So in the cryptozoology community, like many others, we have our feuds and factions, and I've never heard anything but positive feedback about you from researchers and fans alike. Well, what do you think is the key to bridging that denominational gap between the different schools of cryptid thought? Well, I think that, you know, I know I've seen a few things about me on the Internet, which I find oh, yeah. funny. Usually the criticism <laughs> like, you know the hat or something it's like so uh, oh, okay you know, can't find you know, with hats on huh? yeah it's apparently a log it's that but um but other than that you know people often ask you know is everybody has anybody hassled you about this especially when i'm on tour or something mm -hmm. um but it's really weird people you know i could be anywhere playing a gig and people come up and they they want to talk about bigfoot or they want to know about the right. monster thing i mean they're seeing the band but they also want to know about the other thing. So I've, I've only found people fascinated. Um, as far as my reputation and things, I, you know, I, I, first and foremost, I think it's fun. It's fun to research. It's a fun topic. And I put that first. I mean, we may never in our lifetime discover and prove one of these creatures, Bigfoot, for example. So, you know, you don't want to put all you know, your money in the bank on that. If you're not having a good time enjoying the, the friendships that you encounter, enjoy going into the woods, enjoy interviewing people, then then what are you doing? So I keep that. And I also keep an open mind about theories behind it. People get latched onto theories and argue about it. It's like, hey, nobody's an expert, not even me. I, I can't prove any of it. I can only have an open mind 
in approaching the subjects, um, you know, and keep revising those theories as I go. But that doesn't mean anybody else is wrong. So there is really no basis for argument. I mean, I know some people who claim to have seen one of these creatures up Mm -hmm. close. They got a little bit more invested in it. But I'm not trying to persuade anybody to believe in these. I'm more of an investigative journalist that that presents the fascinating details of a case or something, you know, in a book or whatever. And, hey, it's it's there for us all to consider and to make a decision about. I agree with that, actually. I think that, um, excuse me, uh, generally speaking, there are no experts. And obviously people who've seen something will have more of a formed opinion on what they thought they saw. Uh, But generally speaking, if it's not fun, if you don't love it, then why bother? I would describe myself as a fan. I still describe myself as a cryptozoology fan, not a cryptozoologist, because I'm not a zoologist to begin with. So I, how can I add crypto onto the, you know, onto the, the front of that anyway? Um, now, there are many creatures in your books, and I'd like to go over a few of them. So the Beast of Boggy Creek, let's just start with that. That's the folk monster. Is that how you say it? Folk or folk monster? Falk. Falk. Falk monster. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, the creature is said to dwell in the southwest part of Arkansas. It's kind of swampy down there, um, hardwood forests and the Sulphur River bottoms. Uh, the creature is essentially what I would define as a southern Bigfoot. You know, it's mm-hmm. generally described as a seven, six to seven foot tall uh, ape-like creature covered in hair. It can walk upright on two legs. Um, you know, it's been cited by people for years and years from hunters to people driving down the road and things like that. Um, it's one that was made particularly famous because of a movie called The Legend of Boggy Creek, which came out in 1972. Uh, I remember and, it. Yes. Yeah, it was it was just a huge movie. And for people of a certain age, a lot of people remember that, especially ones who are who are fascinated by the subject matter. And that just kind of propelled it to this um, worldwide following where people knew of the Boggy Creek monster, where, um, you know, he have a lot of those kind of little small town cases, but they didn't have a big movie associated with it. So uh, I was one of those people who, as a kid, I saw the movie in a drive-in theater, actually. And that was one of the key points that really, uh, changed my outlook on these things because whereas Bigfoot uh, at that time I associated with the Pacific Northwest, uh, you know, the Yeti was in the Himalaya Mountains, Loch Ness Monster, Scotland, they were all so far away from Texas. But when I saw this tale of, of a Sasquatch like creature in southern Arkansas, about three hours from where I live, you know, this was this was home territory. So that was a very instrumental part. And then as an adult, that's what made me want to find out the whole story behind that. You know, what were the story, the sightings? How was the movie made? What about the movie is true or false or how much was made up or not made up? And that's uh, the Falk monster uh, just became kind of my my initial focus. And I'm associated with the Boggy Creek thing now, obviously. But um, that creature is got a lot of good and credible reports. So I think it's one of those that stands out among other cryptids. Um, 
I mean, it was always fascinating to me. I saw that film as a child, uh, maybe eight or nine years old. I don't know what channel it was on here, but we had very few channels as I was growing up. So it was on some reference channel to some American program somewhere they played the movie. Now, you also talk about other, in your other book, Beyond Boggy Creek, other southern uh, Bigfoot or southern Sasquatch. What kind of other sightings are in that area, Texas and in the southern U.S.? The premise for Beyond Boggy Creek was that while the the Falk monster, the legend of Boggy Creek, was the most famous, <clears throat> there are a lot of other fascinating and equally as sensational encounters of creatures all throughout the Deep South, American Deep South, which consists of about 10 states. So um, you have sightings that are dispersed across Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, all the way over to Florida where you have the skunk ape. And, you know, people don't think about Texas, for example, is, is a place where Bigfoot would exist mm -hmm. because it's a big place, but part of it is very dusty and ranch-like on the western portion, but in the eastern portion, you have pine forest. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's see. Piney forest where... Uh, there's a long history of sightings. So, you know, just going back and looking at the history of uh, those areas, I was able to kind of, you know, add to the whole Southern Bigfoot canon saying that the legend of Boggy Creek is one that everybody may know, but check out all of these other ones. There's there's just long history in all these states. I think that, I mean, that really intrigued me. You might remember that I have the book, actually. Uh, signed by yourself from, from when we met. I really, really did enjoy it. And I think similarly to here in the UK, when we hear about Bigfoot sightings, and there are even some close to this area in Surrey, um, which we commonly refer to as the Woodwows, or that we used to refer to as the Woodwows, it's strange to think of something like that near near to where you live, because it's always easy to conceive of something like the Yeti or the uh, the Sasquatch. Uh, you know, in the, um, the far away climate somewhere in dense forests in in places that are far from you because you don't have to imagine what it's like to live there and conceive of that animal surviving <clears throat> so i think in texas obviously that's a huge state <laughs> and most of the states are very very big and i would imagine comparative to the the actual land the mass of land area the population is very low at least it, it, from an urban perspective is that right yeah, the big cities are quite spread out. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, if you if you took all the forestry and crammed it into one area, it's uh -huh. still only it's second only to Alaska in square oh, wow. miles of forestry. So uh, when you start looking at it, things that way, you're like, mm. uh, Texas Bigfoot, that, you know, that sounds ridiculous. But if you kind of look at it in a more ecological and geographical uh, lens mm. you find that wow this this seems to make some sense especially because if you plot all the Bigfoot sightings in Texas perhaps not coincidentally they're all in that Piney Woods area there's a mm. few out in the, the central Texas and a few in the western Texas but they're it's very few and far between it it tends to follow uh, what you would log logically think would be 
Bigfoot habitat. And then where you get into East Texas, right on the border there, you've got the Sabine River, the Caddo Lake, and that all kind of spills into Louisiana, where uh-huh. you start getting into this bayou country where, you know, again, you have sightings of ape-like creatures in swampy environments. So Texas has a, a huge area that, uh, you know, when you look at it, logically you you can see why there's big sightings or could be because there's a lot of land area and in all those states you start looking at alabama and things where the foothills of the appalachian mountains are, are coming into the state you know those are where you're going to see the sightings and of course florida there's a lot of you know swampy areas places that are hard to get to um, and, and not very much developed and you have all the skunk ape sightings. So a lot of it, yes. while it seems unlikely and seems like Pacific Northwest is the perfect place, mm-hmm. these other places have some merit and they certainly have a history of sightings. I, I certainly, I was in the U.S. in September in a, a few different locations. And, and one of the things that really struck me as I was uh, normally in a land information on Delta or one of those internal flights was the sheer amount of forest and woods and i think it was florida atlanta uh kentucky a bunch of places anyway uh portland maybe as well just forest as far as the eye can see now britain it's actually only 10.6 percent urban sprawl the entire country but it's still a very small country comparatively even though there's a lot of untenanted space and i think really what these creatures need is isolation or the ability to to stay away from people as much as they can, and you you certainly certainly have that there. My wife actually grew up in Arlington, Texas, um, which is between six and twelve, I think. So she speaks of this, and she's from Israel, from a tiny country, even smaller than my own. So she speaks of this massive, massive country where they would seem to, or state where they would seem to just drive for hours and hours and hours to get anywhere. Um, which is, you know, not the experience here. I, I know you've you've written a uh, piece of Boggy Creek, Beyond Boggy Creek. What really piqued my interest, and I don't have this book yet, is the Lizard Man, true story of the Bishopsville monster. What, what what's the Lizard Man? Uh, that case uh, occurred in Bishopville, South Carolina, and started in the late '80s, in which people there reported seeing a upright anthropomorphic type creature that appeared to be greenish or brown covered in scales and it was seen in an area called Scapor Swamp. There's a lot of swampy areas in South Carolina and uh, forested areas as well and uh, this kind of became a famous case because uh, it had a lot of news coverage um, and the sheriff's department there investigated it uh, in a serious manner, not to say they they believe there was a quote unquote lizard man, uh-huh. but you know they believed the reports and the people that had come forward saying they had seen something. So whether it be a rogue bear, a uh, hoax, or anything else, it, it had become a concern that they needed to look into because you had hundreds of people roaming around the swamps and near that okay. little small town of Bishopville, armed and dangerous, okay. and so. It was one that I had read about in, you know, a number of cryptozoology books and was always fascinated because to me it was kind of like a modern creature from the Black Lagoon. I mm. mean, literally people reporting something like that. So um, 
you know, when I finished The Beast of Boggy Creek and thought, well, this is cool. Maybe I should write some more books. I thought, well, let's look into that one. I've always loved that case. Well, you know, what is this lizard man? So I went out there to Bishopville, stayed there, looked through all the police files, talked to what witnesses were still surviving and things like that. And I thought, wow, this is a great story. And like I've found with a lot of this stuff, a lot of the story hasn't been told because, you know, while it's summarized in a section of another book, you know, maybe cryptid creatures and it's somewhere, Lizard Man is somewhere in there. There's a whole lot more to the story. So it ended up being my second book and uh, certainly one that's more bizarre because to explain, you know, just biologically what what this could even be is, is a harder mm-hmm. thing. But at the end of the day, you've got credible people who saw something down there and and that's you know that's the crux of the story i i think that that type of reporting is very important i, I do encounter some things here sometimes that i fall outside of what i say what i'm prepared to believe but the witnesses are just as credible as the nessie witnesses or the bigfoot witnesses or the, some of the strange owl man and flying cryptid witnesses and i have to say to myself well when you're in that situation sometimes you become uh, you suddenly you're in that, that uh, prestigious place of being the unbeliever who needs to be convinced. Whereas let's say perhaps you have a little faith in the other things that we're interested in, like Bigfoot, like other things. We can cite perhaps Gigantopithecus as a possible ancestor. But for werewolves, for example, example of Dogman, I can't think of anything in the fossil record I can relate that to. You know, Nessie could be a plesiosaur, could be something else. That's fine. It becomes plausible. But the paranormal things you know, creeps in and I'm not really fussed on that side of things so I find myself backing off but you have to be honest I, I guess you have to say yeah these witnesses are credible and therefore they believe that they saw what they saw and we just have to interpret that right um uh, I was going to mention that I could see that you've done a lot of field investigations uh, to the southern U.S. um what I was interested in obviously being in a very different environment is what kind of prep that, that you uh, you need to go out looking for cryptids in Texas, for example. What preparatory advice would you give to amateur researchers going out for the first time in your part of the world? What, what are the pros and cons? What should they take? What should they watch out for? Well, you know, I think it probably applies generally to, to any of <clears throat> these locations where you would want to go. Uh, for me, you know, it's it's you need to know a little bit about the history. Find a place where there's been a history of sightings. Um, you know, that would be the area to concentrate on. And if you're going into wooded areas, which most of these are, if you're talking about cryptids, you know, you need to have some forethought into, you know, what you're going to need in that situation. You know, I, I for example, have a, you know, I've got a backpack. It's got a survival kit in it. It's got all the necessary things that I would need in an emergency situation because, you know, if these cryptids exist, they're not typically sitting on the side of the road waiting for you. You know, you're going to want to go out and, you know, you may see one crossing the road, but if you're trying to actively see them, you're going to have to go into rugged places. So, uh, you know, you want to be prepared for that kind of thing. Uh, Know where you're going, you know, take somebody with you. Uh, Then you're going to need things which would be necessary to document anything you found. I mean, you know, 
the time you don't bring something to cast a track, that's when you're going to find a track. So, you know, you need a good camera, you need casting uh, material like hydrocal, um, you know, water to mix that with to cast. You need, you know, some binoculars are good, uh, any kind of thermal imaging device or something else to help you see at night. You know, a lot of people have seen these on, seen this sort of thing on television, you know, mm-hmm. and I think the, the gadgets, they're, uh, familiar with but it's the other things you got to think about you know just going in in places and, and thinking well there there's the potential to get hurt um you know you got to pay attention to don't be on people's land or private property um you know it's hard especially in texas most of the land is private property so you got to kind of study the area know where you can go uh you know without getting a shotgun <laughs> oh could you run into that kind of trouble there uh yeah i've i've been i mean i i've never been chased off by a shotgun but uh there's been a few times where we're looking into a case or trying to go to the area where somebody had had a sighting and you know it's it's getting encroaching on private land and people Uh have come up and confronted us and you know want to know what we're doing and oh yeah it's like that so you know i try to tell them like hey i'm lyle blackburn (laughs) You may have seen me on you know, Monsters <laughs> Mysteries. Sometimes that work. Sometimes they don't think that's that they're not they, impressed. They tell you they don't have a TV, right? And <laughs> they're, like, they're they're not buying it. So you know, it's it's weird to tell people you're looking for a Bigfoot. Sometimes yeah. they're like, "Oh yeah, man, I'll, let me tell you, we saw something weird." And suddenly, it you get on, you know, you you get a bite on some other information. Yeah. But the other side of the coin is they're they're not happy with you being around and so and i guess from their perspective uh if you do see something you may attract other attention to their land that they they don't want people traipsing about all over the place after your sighting or your evidence looking for bigfoot Uh, that's a headache i I suppose that factors into it as well um talking about telling people who you are um you're a successful musician you're very well known in the uh, in cryptozoology for for what you do as well you have a child you have two children or one one child is that right they have a daughter one daughter you have a daughter um how do you find now this is something i deal with this in this area england being a lot more conservative um have you had to deal with any negative impact from your chosen career on your child name calling invites to parties even friendships or other parents or being omitted from those things or have you found that Bigfoot and Friends has added something interesting to, for your child to talk about in school? Or was it just a mixed bag? No, I mean, she she's in first grade. So I, I don't a lot of her classmates aren't so much aware of me. I mean, she knows what I do and and all that. But, you know, as far as the adults or the parents or anybody in this where I live, I've never encountered anything. But, you know, fascination people want to ask me about this and know about it and you know i've done presentations down in our local library and you know you know lot lots of the you know the neighbors and the 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 people we know come to those and uh, some of my daughter's uh, friends and things so you know it's all just been totally positive people are just fascinated by it i've never had anybody really give me a hassle so i don't know if that's just because i don't look like i should be hassled or if they just Uh, genuinely i I find that most people 
And, and the other thing, and kind of our, our conversations, why people don't, you know, really don't say bad stuff about me is because you gotta, you gotta understand why people are skeptical about this. You gotta uh -huh. meet them halfway. If yeah. you just come at them like, dude, Bigfoot's real. You exactly. better believe they don't, that that's a put off. You have to yeah. understand that they don't like you and I have a, a, a greater knowledge and we know where they're sightings and we've talked to people who've seen it. These people haven't. So you have to understand they're starting from a skeptical view. But if you kind of identify with say, yeah, I know it sounds crazy, but check this out. And then you tell them about a scenario or something and you say, you know, uh, you lay it out like, you know, Texas is a big state. There could only be 500 Sasquatch. Imagine trying to find one of 500. You know, yeah. it's harder to find a, a mountain lion. You imagine trying to find something that wants to stay reclusive. And there's only, say, 500 of them as a viable population spread out in all those woods. And then you see the wheels turn and they're like, you know, yeah. yeah. And once you explain that, then they start then they want to know more like, okay, this sounds good. So I find that that's the way to approach people is understand they're skeptical and, and, you know, just have fun with it. And it's always been positive for me. I, I think it's something similar. If you don't take yourself too seriously, if you um, don't come on strong, people are more responsive. I always generally say to people, I understand that this is a big ask. It's a big ask to ask you to can even consider something like this. And again, I would sometimes mention the big cats here, the hundreds and hundreds of big cat sightings. And yet nobody's caught one. You know, nobody's captured one of these big cats. We've got hundreds of, bit of bits of footage and photos and thousands of people have seen them. And yet they're not supposed to be here. And they're they're managing to survive the British countryside. They're managing to stay out of sight. So what other things could there be, et cetera, et cetera? A very similar principle. Um Coming on to that, that side of things, actually, uh, some people say these days that Bigfoot is big business. I, I would disagree with that, but I would say it's popular. And, uh, you know, new groups and tours seem to be springing up all over the place. Do you think the merchandising and, and monetizing of the genres is harmful to its credibility? Or does it simply make genuine researchers stand out a bit more amongst the crowd? You know, for example, if you've got three bakers on the street, perhaps everybody just goes there for bread. Yeah, I th I think that uh, on one hand, it, it probably does uh, have an effect on, you know, people complain that mainstream science won't take it seriously. And, and I think because Bigfoot is kind of this pop culture icon, this isn't a new phenomenon. I mean, in the 70s, you had board games and all kinds of Bigfoot stuff, even then. And I think that, you know, Bigfoot's a a board game. Bigfoot's a something to exploit on TV or something funny in commercials. I think mainstream science kind of just says, eh, I don't know. I just, you know, you can understand. They just don't want to oh. get involved in that. Um, but, you know, it's something that it, it's fun. You know, I don't know. It doesn't all that stuff at the end of the day, you know, have fun with it. It's part of the culture. Um, and, you know, I'm sure people look at me and think I make make money off Bigfoot and stuff, but it's not really true. I can I yeah. pretty much can spend more. I mean, the amount of time. I mean, you know, I, I can't have a real job if you want. If I if people want me to write books and talk uh -huh. about this, know about the subjects, I have to spend all the time doing it. You know, that's a sacrifice that I need some compensation. So hopefully, 
by doing a lot of research and then having a book that people enjoy, it's kind of a two-way street where they, they can buy yeah. something, support the research, enjoy the book, and keep me going where I can um, detail these cases. But, um, you know, it, it's it, it's fun. And if you go to a Bigfoot conference, you know, it, it, you do learn something and you get see a presentation by, uh, you know, persons like myself or Ken Gerhardt or Dr. Jeff Meldrum or, or you and get some really good insight. But at the same time, hey, it's fun. You could buy a Bigfoot cast. You could buy, you know, a Bigfoot poster. It kind of keeps you in. Uh, it kind of keeps you motivated because at the end of the day, we don't have a lot to show for Bigfoot. You know, I mean, it, we don't have a body. And even though Bigfoot's been exploited and all that and mainstream science may think it's silly. If somebody were to bring forth a body or some absolute proof, then all things, then it would just be, okay, everybody would go silent because now it's a real deal. So it doesn't matter what perception people have of Bigfoot. If you've got the right proof, that erases everything. And it would start from a scientific standpoint. I think that's a good point, Lyle. I also think, you know, think about the, um, the Kraken, right? The giant squid, that was the Kraken forever and ever and ever. This giant squid that people were dis- discussing, sailors and seamen and all these, um, you know, old wives' tales, this folklore. Now, suddenly you see one in a museum. Oh, giant squid. Huh. On you go. You know, it's impressive. But you don't think, oh, my gosh, the Kraken. Ever. Right. And maybe one day Bigfoot will be the same thing. Just in the, you know, the normal book of flora and fauna and... um uh, just uh, whatever the technical name will be, whoever gets to name it, it's Sasquatch, it's Bigfoot. There it is. And we know that they live here, 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 and here. These are the sustainable populations. These are all the you know, um, ecological changes we've had to make, environmental changes to protect the animal's habitat. Something like that. That, for me, makes it credible. The giant squid makes it credible. Because for the longest time, that was, that was um, make-believe. Wasn't it? And I wonder what else we, we will find. Um, now, just two brief questions before you go. Um, first, I ask everybody, if, if you're fully funded, money being no object, where in the world would you want to conduct an expedition? What animal would you search for? And who would you take with you? Who would be your dream team? You don't have to say me. <laughs> of course you i mean you gotta have a you gotta have a guy with a british accent if you want your, uh, if you want to seem legitimate you, you know do. you, you do don't, don't be fooled we're not clever not, not none of us are clever it it balances with the texas accent uh what can this guy know he sounds like a, a yeah. texan but uh i think that i would choose uh, to search for the orang pendic in Sumatra, which I find to to be one of the most credible and likely cryptids out there. For those that don't know, it's a kind of a smaller version of Bigfoot seen in Sumatra in the Indonesia area. And uh, I I think there's some, some really good sightings, some really good evidence, uh, footprints and things. And so I think given that that's an area where a few of my colleagues have done a lot of study and research, I would take them along and that would be Adam Davies and Cliff Berrickman. 
And, uh, you know, those are a couple of guys that I've known for many years and we get along very well and they've done some great research. And I've always, that's one place I want to go. I mean, I'm kind of the Southern, the Southern guy and the swampy Bigfoot sort of dude, but, um, I, I would really like to go over there. I mean, you know, I could, if not to find ultimate proof, just, just to say, I, I, it seems so Indiana Jones to me. So yeah. Yeah, you'd have to change your hat. Yeah, yeah, I may have yeah. to get like a black, more of a black story, uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, keep with a theme. But, you know, yeah, that that would be the place I'd go because that just, just fascinates me, the Orang Pendic uh, case. I think I think that's a that's a great case, actually. And as soon as you said the Orang Pendic, I already thought Adam and Cliff, <laughs> those are the guys going with him, got to be, they've done great work there so finally i understand that you have a, a new book coming out is that right right momo, momo the missouri monster ah, when is that due for release and, and where can we get it uh it should hit around march 5th is the release date and uh, you can get it in the usual places which would be amazon uh you can get it from my own web store at lyleblackburn.com where you can get autographed copies of all my books so uh, yeah, I'm excited about this. It was it's one that's kind of a, another famous Bigfoot case um, and it wouldn't fit in beyond Boggy Creek. I mean, it kind of applies. Missouri can be considered southern. Some people consider it southern and somewhat is. Um, but the story was just too big. And it was one that I had read about when I was younger. Um, it had been covered in some books. and I'm like, one of these days. I'm going to go up there and I'm going to look into this, into the Momo case. So finally, uh, I've, I've done that. And I think people will really enjoy this book. It's it's fun and it's got a lot of other, I call it Momo, the strange case of the Missouri monster, because not only are a lot of Bigfoot sightings, the case of Momo itself in this small town in Missouri along the Mississippi River, but you had a, a, some weird associated phenomenon, lights in the sky and disembodied voices, all kinds of spooky stuff that oh. play into that story. So it's it's really cool. That, that's amazing. I, I really look forward to that and, and to all the other work as well. Uh, my advice to anybody out there who's thinking of buying uh, one of Lyle's books is to get the new one and work your way back to the beginning. They really are great. Uh, you've been a great guest. Thank you for coming on and I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye.